Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Sarah Sadian of the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, who examines the impact of the expiration of the federal eviction moratorium on the lives of millions of Americans who now face the prospect of homelessness. Zenny Cortez, president of National Nurses United, who discusses her union support for the CDC's recent decision to issue new guidelines on mask wearing and other measures to defeat the coronavirus pandemic. And Mike Ewell, founder and executive director of the Energy Justice Network, who assesses the relative toxicity of incineration, landfills, and recycling, and what it will take to move towards zero waste. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. As the United States and NATO exit Afghanistan, President Biden is boosting U.S. security ties with neighboring Central Asian states that provided a vital supply route in the early days of the Afghan war. In July, Biden officials met with diplomats from Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and Kazakhstan to discuss plans to provide temporary refuge for Afghan translators and civilian contractors who are now waiting for their special immigrant U.S. entry visas to be processed. More than 50,000 Afghans, who may be the target of Taliban violence, could soon be evacuated. Foreign Policy magazine reports that the Biden administration is considering Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Kazakhstan as possible staging areas for U.S. troops to monitor and quickly respond to possible security problems that may follow the U.S. military's Afghan withdrawal. But Russia has strongly warned the U.S. against deploying its troops in the former Soviet Central Asian nations. Russia's deputy foreign minister, Sergei Ryabkov, said, The redeployment of the American permanent military presence to the country's neighboring Afghanistan is unacceptable. Through the bloody Syrian civil war, enterprising drug traffickers prospered exporting the illicit drug Captagon, popular in dance clubs across the Middle East. The drug, similar to amphetamine, increases energy as it wards off sleep and has a similar effect as Viagra. As Syria's formal economy collapsed from the destruction of war, sanctions, and the autocratic rule of the Assads, The Economist magazine reports the drug has become Syria's main export and source of hard currency. In 2020, authorities seized Syrian drugs with a street value of no less than $3.4 billion. In comparison, Syria's legal export of olive oil only netted $122 million a year. Ian Larson of the Cyprus-based Center for Operational Analysis and Research maintains that the drug is financing Syria's central government. Many militia groups in Syria are involved in the manufacture and smuggling of Captagon and other drugs. Chemical plants in the cities of Homs and Aleppo have been converted into pill factories. A critic of the Assad regime, Malik al-Abdah, says the Syrian government uses illicit drugs as a weapon against the Gulf states. But drug addiction is also exploding inside Syria. 
A recent survey of Syrians in the north found that drug use has quadrupled during the last two years. As the U.S. Senate moves ahead with a trillion-dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill, wealthy private equity groups are targeting poor cities like Fayetteville, North Carolina, where they've proposed a deal to repair chronic sewer overflows and improve poor traffic signal lights. In 2020, Bernhardt Capital Partners offered the city $750 million worth of improvements in exchange for a contract to operate the city-owned water and power utilities for the next 30 years and to keep the profits. Across the Southeast, BCP approached low-income communities proposing to spend 15 to $20 billion on municipal utilities projects. Private equity firms' investment of upfront capital could pay off with billions in profit over the next several decades. And while BCP's cash would likely come at a premium compared with low-cost municipal bonds, it could help finance projects the federal government has neglected to fund. In negotiations over the bipartisan federal infrastructure bill, consumer advocates are concerned about the inclusion of a Republican-supported measure called asset recycling, which would offer federal incentives for cities to sell off or lease taxpayer-owned assets to the private sector to finance new projects. Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat of Massachusetts, told the American Prospect, we cannot allow Wall Street to take over our public utilities just so they can rake in profits while raising prices for consumers. She said, private equity firms have taken advantage of working Americans for too long. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Leslie Rudden. On July 31st, the federal moratorium on evictions expired, which for more than 15 months helped protect millions of American renters from losing their homes. The Federal Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act included an eviction moratorium for certain households beginning March 27, 2020, which was extended by actions of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Congress through the end of July. Some 6.5 million households in the U.S. are behind in their rent, and half of these families could face homelessness over the next two months. Both President Biden and Congress failed to take action to extend the moratorium as the expiration date drew near. Surprisingly, out of $46.5 billion in rental relief previously approved by Congress, only $3 billion has been distributed to renters. However, on August 3rd, the CDC issued a new eviction moratorium that would extend through October 3rd, but some legal observers say the order could be blocked by the U.S. Supreme Court. Public health officials and housing advocates warn that allowing the moratorium to expire as the COVID-19 Delta variant spreads across the country, particularly in marginalized communities, could lead to increased infections and coronavirus deaths. Your reporter spoke with Sarah Sadian vice president of public policy with the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, who examines the impact of the expiration of the eviction moratorium 
on the lives of millions of Americans who now face possible homelessness. So of the six and a half million renter families who are behind on their rent, we estimate that about half of them are facing eviction in the next two months. And that's because many of them have uh, accumulated back rent over the last year and a half. Uh, the moratorium was keeping them in their home while state and local governments were working to distribute emergency rental assistance. Uh, but with this moratorium listing, it means that many households won't be able to actually receive that help that Congress provided. And so um, it's hard to get a real firm estimate uh, because the only data that is out there is really from the census that has been doing a survey. We don't really have a federal database that looks at evictions across the board. And so we're pooling together all this sort of information that's out there to give our best guess of how many households are at risk. Sarah, tell us about the $40 billion that was allocated by Congress, funds under the Emergency Rental Assistance Program that have not been spent on helping those folks who need assistance with their rent. Why is that money still sitting there? That is a great question. Part of the reason that we're seeing uh, so many delays in getting resources out to households is, is first because Congress took so long to pass um, COVID relief bills that included rental assistance. We had been calling for emergency rental assistance at the very start of the pandemic. We knew that renters would be hard hit by job losses uh, and would need that support. But it took until December of 2020 for Congress to actually pass legislation. Since then, we have seen programs undertake this huge undertaking to set up and expand rental assistance programs. But our nation really doesn't have that sort of infrastructure on an ongoing basis. And so they're starting from scratch. And some communities have done a great job of allocating resources. But many, many more just haven't been able to get the money out the door. Overall, we're looking at about only $3 billion that has been spent of the total $46 billion, which means that there are resources out there on the table. We just need more time to get that money into the hands of renters and landlords. For those listeners who are confronting the expiration of this eviction moratorium and may find themselves in the crosshairs of some court-ordered eviction, I know it varies in in each state and locality, but how can they access the funding that's there to assist them? Well, the first thing I would recommend for folks to do is if they or someone they know is in need of assistance, to call 211 or go to the website. Um, that, That will connect people to a local call center that will know of resources that are available in your area. Another option is for renters to go to our website where we're tracking over a thousand rental assistance programs and you can find out which ones are closest to you. And of course, if you're facing eviction, you should be contacting a legal aid attorney or organization that can provide you representation in an eviction court. Um, those three measures are things that renters should be doing as quickly as possible. Um, delaying seeking assistance is not going to help um, because we know that it will take time for resources to actually reach people in need. So the sooner, the better. President Biden and Congress have been criticized for their inaction to extend the eviction moratorium. Joe Biden cited the Supreme Court in deciding that the executive branch couldn't extend the moratorium unilaterally, leaving Congress to take action. But of course, they left town for the August recess and nothing's happened yet. Can you make sense of 
the failure here? Yeah, it's a really terrible situation, uh, for lack of a better word. You know, the president is correct that the Supreme Court has threatened to overturn the moratorium if it were to be extended. At the same time, we know that you know, even if the bill that Maxine Waters and Speaker Pelosi had pushed through, tried to push through in the House, even if it passed the House, we would really be facing a huge uphill battle to get it passed through the Senate, where we know it would be nearly impossible to pull off 10 Republicans to vote with Democrats on the bill. So um, both of those are, you know, an eviction moratorium is necessary, but it's so difficult to see the path forward at the federal level. I think where we can see the, you know, the most important reforms and actions to protect renters, there's a lot of things that can happen at the state and local level. State and local governments have more authority to pass eviction moratoriums than the federal government does, and we're urging them to take every single action that they can to protect renters and also to get their emergency rental assistance money quickly into the hands of people in need. That was Sarah Sadian, Vice President of Public Policy with the National Low-Income Housing Coalition. Learn more about the consequences of the expiration of the federal moratorium on evictions by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On May 13th, after COVID-19 vaccines have been widely distributed across the U.S. and the worst of the pandemic appeared to be over, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention relaxed their recommended precautions. At that time, the CDC issued guidelines that said fully vaccinated individuals no longer had to wear masks indoors in most situations. But since May, the COVID Delta variant has spread like wildfire across the U.S. and much of the world, with hospitalizations reaching peak pandemic levels not seen since last winter. With the new wave of infections, the CDC issued revised guidelines on July 27th recommending that everyone in areas with high COVID infection rates wear masks in public indoor spaces, regardless of their vaccination status. While the Delta mutated version of the virus is highly infectious and is thought to result in more severe disease, the CDC maintains that individuals who receive vaccines are still afforded strong protection against serious illness, hospitalizations, and death. Your reporter spoke with Zenny Cortez, a registered nurse and president of the National Nurses United Union. Here she discusses the union's support for the CDC's new guidelines on masks and other measures the nation should be taking to slow down and eventually end the COVID-19 pandemic. When the CDC lifted the mandate for masking for vaccinated uh, folks, we were uh, very much concerned and upset that they would do that. So now with the CDC reversing and rearranging their course, we applaud them for doing it because we know that it's difficult to tell which people have been vaccinated and which people are not. And and so there's no way of telling. And putting on the mask is a very cheap way, but effective way to stop the spread of the virus. We, we wanted to push very much to have masking 
be mandated and be highly recommended because we know that it works. And again, it might be cumbersome to a lot of people, but it is a very cheap but effective way to stop the spread of the virus. So with them rearranging their course or refocusing on this, we are very glad that they are doing it. And, and so we applaud them. In your view, has the CDC got a problem with its messaging here, its public message out there in terms of masks and precautions that we as Americans should take here, whether vaccinated or not? Or is it inevitable that these recommendations are going to change as a result of new scientific data coming in from these new mutations of the virus, like the the Delta variant? Uh, Yeah, um, the CDC could do a better job. They should be doing a massive, widespread, proactive public education on the importance of vaccination, the importance of masking, social distancing, all those components that would help stop the spread of the virus. And then with this new variant that's even more serious, So all of that should be coming from the CDC because our employers look up to the CDC for guidance. And if CDC will not improve or update their guidance, then all of us will be in in bad shape. And so we would like the CDC, again, to do a better job on making sure that people are aware of the importance of vaccination, and the importance of following all the precautionary principles that were there at the beginning of this pandemic. So all those components together would make us help stop the spread of the virus. And again, the CDC should do a better job on that. One thing that's very troubling to people in public health across the country is that in the states of Florida and Texas, which are seeing large numbers of new infections and hospitalizations from this COVID Delta variant. We have the governors of Florida and Texas, Ron DeSantis and Greg Abbott, signing executive orders that prohibits local and county governments in their states from mandating mask wearing, including in Florida, mask wearing in schools when a lot of children will be coming back into the school system in the fall and children, from what I understand, are more vulnerable to this Delta COVID variant than they were to the original virus. In many ways, it's inexplicable and irrational here in the midst of this new wave of COVID to be telling local and county governments they can't impose mass mandates. For the nurses, again, what we're saying is that we should not mix politics with science because, like I've mentioned, science has shown that multiple measures approach is the most effective and something we can be doing now. And masking, like I said, is cheap, but very effective. And, and so these elected officials should not be putting their political career in front of what science have proven. And, and that puts our folks, our children, the public at risk. It's really breaking our hearts as nurses that, you know, the the public, especially the children, the elderly, those who are vulnerable, are being put at high risk over this nonsense 
you know, and and that should stop. People should make sure that their elected political candidates should be held accountable for all this needless deaths. That was Zenny Cortez, president of the National Nurses United Union. Learn more about the Nurses Union's position on strengthening the nation's efforts to defeat the coronavirus pandemic by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Americans put out their trash every week, and a truck comes to take it away. But there really is no away, as all the pizza boxes, plastic bags, and food scraps have to go somewhere. According to various studies, Americans produce between 1,600 and 1,700 pounds of garbage each year, roughly three times higher than the global average. That's enough to bury almost a million football fields under six feet of trash. Mike Ewell began fighting incinerators, or so-called trash-to-energy plants, in the 1990s, while still a high school student. He went on to found the Philadelphia-based Energy Justice Network, which still focuses its work on preventing the construction of or closing down incinerators. But he's expanded his area of interest to include the disposal of all garbage and how to minimize it to zero waste. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus spoke with Ewell about the relative toxicity and sustainability of incineration, landfills, and recycling, and describes what he calls the hierarchy of waste. People seem to think that incineration is better than landfilling. However, when you burn waste, you're putting about 70% of it into the air as air pollution, and the other 30% into the form of toxic ash, which still goes to a landfill, making the landfill smaller but more toxic. That's not the size of landfills that's harmful to people, it's the toxicity. So it's actually worse to burn and put all that pollution in the air, make things more toxic, and then make the landfill more dangerous than if you were just to put the waste straight into the landfill at less cost. I guess I would say that the best solution is to create less waste. Recycling, which is supposed to be preceded by, you know, reducing and reusing before you recycle, seems like that doesn't happen much. And even the recycling has completely, I think, completely sort of fallen apart from what it was, you know, 20 years ago when there were maybe fewer items, but they were separated and it was cleaner stuff and there was a market for it. And now it seems like the market's fallen apart. So recycling markets are very strong right now, and they're expected to stay strong for the foreseeable future. They were having problems in the past few years because China got fed up with the poorly sorted recyclables um, from U.S. single stream recycling programs. And China and other Asian countries started to say no to taking our recyclables. But the domestic markets have caught up. There are a number of plastics that don't have a market that are not easily recyclable. So outside of ones, twos, and sometimes fives, those other plastics would need to be phased out. There's not a strong market for them. They're some of the more toxic plastics. And glass also has a problem unless we have a bottle bill. Separating glass by color gives it a really strong market. But when it's not separated well, then it's not as valuable, but still has some value to it. Um, So I would say recycling markets are good right now. They're going to stay good. And this myth that somehow recycling is broken is wrong. Wow. Well, that's good news. 
I want to talk a little bit about how to arrive at zero waste. Um, another huge piece of the garbage situation is organics that you know people throw away from food preparation or food spoilage in the refrigerator never gets eaten and then is spoiled. What can you say about that? Is there anything happening to deal with that piece of it? Let me get to that by going through the hierarchy and what I consider to be the order of priority. I like to start usually at the top of the hierarchy and working my way down. I think the number one important thing to do is make sure that you're not doing the most dangerous thing that you could possibly do, which is to use incineration. So incineration is not even on the zero waste hierarchy on purpose because you recognize that it's the most expensive and polluting way to manage waste, but also that it often involves contracts that require that you generate a certain amount of waste or pay anyway to the incinerator company as if you did, which is called put or pay clauses in their contracts, which landfills don't have, but incinerators generally do. And that punishes you for doing the right thing. So that is just deadly to a zero waste effort. And due to the grave health and environmental harms from incineration, it's an imperative to get incineration out of the way before prioritizing any of the other pieces of the zero waste solution. To start at the top of the zero waste hierarchy, you start with redesigning and rethinking things. Ultimately, we need to start with corporate industrial design and how products are produced, because for every one pound of waste you throw in your trash can, 70 pounds of waste were created before you even picked that item up off the store shelf. We really can't tackle this whole system by composting or recycling our way out of things. We must stop at the or start at the top of the zero waste hierarchy and deal with the products themselves and how they're manufactured. Then once you're done that, you get to reduce, reuse, recycle, and compost. And there are many different policies that can get you to different places in there. There are efforts by states and local governments to ban certain types of single-use plastics, which is great. And reusing, of course, thrift stores and other things that encourage reuse. And then the recycling and composting are the next priorities. And the most effective way to quickly get the reduced, reuse, recycling, and composting going on is to have a system called unit-based pricing, otherwise known as pay-as-you-throw or save-as-you-throw. And this is where people end up in companies too, should be paying per bag or per bin or in companies case per dumpster so that the price signal is there. Just like we pay for how much water, electric and gas that we use with waste, it's often different. And your neighbor can put out 10 bags a week and you can put out one, you end up paying the same amount and it's not fair. So when they do charge people per bag, you find instantly the amount of waste generated that hits the curb goes down by an average of 44%. That was Mike Yule, founder and executive director of the Philadelphia-based Energy Justice Network. Learn more about the group's work toward a clean energy, zero emission, and zero waste future by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org.
where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WHYR in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, KTAL in Las Cruces, New Mexico, KMRE in Bellingham, Washington, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Leslie Rudden, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.